this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. As you will see, this, is a, this passage is pretty heavy. Um, typically, I, um, when we do child dedications, I try to read something in conjunction with the sermon uh, from the Children's Storybook Bible, but man, is that a challenge, given the passage that we have before us. Um, but we're going to go ahead and get started with this, and it, it is a heavy passage, I'll warn you right now, but I think it's also surprisingly encouraging. Um, if you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Matthew five twenty-seven through 30. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, as we make our way uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're coming now into two, this Sunday, next Sunday, really heavy, tough passages. And so we just we need an extra dispensation of your grace. And Lord, we, we trust you with this text. Though it be heavy, we know that you have given it to us still as a gift for our own good and for the good of our city and, and our world. Help us to see that this morning. Holy Spirit, work in great power, miraculous power to edify us accordingly. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a fascinating passage to consider in a moment in which we might say that sexual fulfillment actualized through sexual freedom might be our society's de facto religion. Recently, I've seen authors argue that we probably, this is, this is hard to confirm for sure, but there's a good chance that we place more hope, more hope in sexual fulfillment today than and any other society in the history of the world. And since our religion is essentially the direction of our hope, our religion is the direction of our hope, that's how we can look at it, which means that everybody is religious, sexual fulfillment becomes our church. That's where we're living, so to speak. And then we encounter this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus tells us, well, there actually is a way of pursuing sexual fulfillment that's completely out of bounds. And more broadly than that, and this is an even spicier take, Jesus tells us, hey, your desires can absolutely misfire. Even your most passionate desires that appear to, to well up from the depths of your being. Something that feels so right can still be 
categorically wrong. And these takes from Jesus are related. You know, we believe in our moment that freedom with no restrictions or boundaries is the key to sexual fulfillment because we tend to trust our desires and our proclivities. But if our desires can and do misfire, then we need boundaries set by a king who loves us. Which means that the way to live well in this world, sexually and otherwise, is to trust the king's plan and his boundaries more than our desires. I want to pause. I want to ask a question before we really get going here. Church, are we willing to trust King Jesus' standards in all areas of our lives, regardless of what those standards say, regardless of how costly they might be, regardless of how upside down they might feel culturally? Do we believe that trusting the king entirely in all of these areas is the way to live well in this world? Or if we're, if we're being honest with ourselves, are we perhaps professing Christ, but actually trying to live how we please, ignoring or twisting the standards that we really don't like very much? Are you the functional king, perhaps enjoying the idea of Jesus and the idea of kingdom living while bending Jesus into basically your own image? Keep those questions in mind as we make our way into this passage, and I do want you to know on the front end that, believe it or not, there's far more encouragement to be found in this passage than you might think, seriously. So here we go. One reflection and one exhortation this morning as we consider adultery, lust, and how to keep ourselves out of hell. That's a bit provocative, right? Should be. And fair warning, things are going to get pretty tough for a minute, and then they'll get better. So here's a reflection. Adultery turns out to be heart deep, and, and then now the exhortation, tear it out. So adultery, Jesus is saying, is heart deep, and then we'll get to this exhortation. So, so tear it out. Let's start with the reflection. Adultery is heart deep. Look with me again at verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As we've discussed the past few weeks, Jesus says, you have heard it said, phraseology refers to the Torah, to the law, and in this specific case, Jesus directly quotes the seventh of the Ten Commandments, as we tend to call them today, in Exodus chapter 20. Why was committing adultery such a problem in God's eyes? I mean, isn't, isn't that take a bit narrow? Isn't that take a bit repressive? I mean, if you're married and then you meet someone that you like even more, and then that person likes you more, and then, you know, there's mutual sexual attraction. Why not just go on with it? Why deny yourselves that fulfillment, and therefore deny yourself happiness and, and meaning? Here's why God does not like adultery, and therefore outlaws it. Number one, 
there's a design problem. There's a design problem. Did you know that the Bible essentially begins with a marriage? Here's Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, speaking of Adam and the creation of the woman eventually called Eve. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One flesh refers to a union in which the man and the woman essentially become an exclusive new unit, emotionally and physically, affording them all sorts of relational benefits and contributing to their earthly flourishing. Adultery attacks this union, rending a relationship that God designed with perfect precision for the sake of our flourishing upon this earth. So there's a design problem. Number two, there's a justice problem. In adultery, we are taking somebody else's spouse. We are engaged, you might say, in stealing of the highest order. And we are stealing from the children of that spouse if they have kids. And we are stealing from that spouse's parents and in-laws and on and on and on we could go. And if we ourselves are married, when we take someone else's spouse, then we are abandoning our own spouse, failing in every sense to fulfill our covenantal vows, possibly failing to provide for our spouse economically, and the list goes on and on and on again. Plus, adultery is it's inherently self-oriented, which means that we are in this kind of relationship, we are far more likely to act manipulatively, to control, to abuse, since we are seeing fellow human beings as someone to be had for the sake of our personal gratification. It's the opposite. It's literally the opposite of the, the sacrificial, other-oriented posture that God intends for marriage. Maybe, I might be really naive here, maybe, just maybe, the ugliness of these injustices helps us understand why the law, you might know this, actually prescribed death for both parties involved with adultery. You can see this in Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. A whole, whole lot of folks in the West find this punishment very objectionable. Sometimes it's even employed as a supposed defeater argument against Christianity. You will hear this. But perhaps that has something to do with, man, our inability to truly understand the scope of our sin, especially the, the horizontal impacts of our sin in this, this overwhelmingly individualistic, self-oriented age. Individualism, it gives us this, this tunnel vision that prevents us from seeing the communal effects of our sinful actions, especially injustices like this. And by the way, Deuteronomy chapter 22 actually confirms our focus on the injustice of adultery and other sexual sin by nuancing the nature of the consequences according to the circumstances. So if, if a man seizes a betrothed or basically 
married woman and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. And then if a man seizes an, an unbetrothed or an unmarried woman, he'd better, as Deuteronomy chapter 22 says, he'd better be ready to commit the rest of his life to her in marriage and support her economically, lest he leave her, basically sealing her fate in ancient Near Eastern culture as unmarriable and economically vulnerable. So to, to kill the man in that specific situation would put the unmarried woman in a very disadvantageous social situation, again, on account of their culture, thus the stipulation for him to spend the rest of his life caring for her and providing for her. So there is, this, as you can see, a massive focus in the law on caring for the vulnerable and the least of these, and you can see an example of that right here. Number three, God does not like adultery because there's a witness problem. So there's a design issue that we just talked about. There's a justice issue. And now thirdly, there's a, there's a witness problem. Marriage, as it turns out, is designed by God to display the shape of God's relationship with his people, particularly God's steadfast faithfulness to his people, despite their ongoing issues, shall we say. In fact, in the New Testament, we end up finding out in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is a profound mystery that refers to Christ in the church. So, good news, really good news, marriage is a beautiful opportunity to show Jesus to people, especially the magnificence of his character in sacrificially caring for his bride, the church, despite its issues. Bad news Rending a marriage through adultery undermines all of this. So good news, marriage isn't just about you. Bad news in terms of adultery, marriage isn't just about you. Chipper, this is very heavy. This is very difficult. But, I mean, it's very convincing. Good speech. Okay, so accordingly, I'm committing to not commit adultery. I will not, you know, based on what I'm hearing here, I will not take someone else's spouse. I'm very glad to hear that. And you know, the, the hearers of the Sermon on the Mount would have been basically on the same page, the proof being that adultery was not particularly common in Jewish society. It happened, but not very often. But here's the thing, and you know where we're going here. Jesus continues with the sermon. Why? Because adultery turns out to be heart deep. Verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Is this some radical new teaching from Jesus? So he's just pulling out of a hat. You have heard this said, but you know what? This. Not really because... The Mosaic Law, please hear me on this, is very important. The Mosaic Law is very interested in the heart. It's very interested in the inner person. By no means is the posture of the law. Well, as long as you act the part, who cares about your heart? You know, as long as you do these kind of external behaviors, 
Who cares about your heart? Who, who cares about how you see yourself? So Jesus is actually recapturing something that was already there in the law, but easily overlooked for the sake of more thoroughly applying the spirit of the law for spiritual transformation. Turns out that Jesus is really after clean hearts that belong to him, not just externally clean or or kind of whitewashed action. He's after your heart. Which gives us some pause, doesn't it? Because here's the thing. You You could possibly tough out a marriage, so to speak, such as, you know, for the sake of the kids, or to avoid, you know, messy social consequences or whatever, even though internally you desire and fantasize about someone else's spouse. You could kind of like tough it out. Because you could, you could possibly maintain the appearance of righteousness while watching shows, maybe even culturally acceptable and celebrated shows that feed your lusting heart. So even if we're avoiding adulterous acts, and even if we're being affirmed by others as moral, upstanding people, Jesus is making it clear that we may still have adulterous hearts. And though the the earthly consequences for our heart problems might not be as severe as actual adultery, the truth is that unfettered, adulterous hearts will, you can see this in verse 29, they will lead us into hell. Why? Why is that? Is it because lust-free, monogamous marriage or celibacy gets you into heaven? No, that's not why. It's because lustful hearts, unfettered, lustful hearts, are not the kinds of hearts that belong to Jesus that have been given to him and repentant faith. In a moment, I'm going to ask some tough questions. But can you already see some compassion here from Jesus, despite the supreme difficulty of this teaching? Can you already see even just a a hint of compassion? There is no shade here from Jesus concerning sexuality in in general. In fact, there's a lot to be celebrated. But Jesus is definitely saying that our sexuality is designed by God for a specific and beautiful purpose. And accordingly, get this now, he wants to lead us into that beauty for the sake of our flourishing while keeping us away from alternatives that might seem promising, but actually destroy us and harm others. C.S. Lewis gave this example in a letter that he wrote to his friend Arthur Greaves back in 1933. He said this to Arthur, Suppose you're walking a dog by a post. Like Think like a streetlight. Suppose you're walking a dog by a post. You know what happens, apart from his usual ceremonies and passing a post. You know what happens. The dog tries to go to the wrong side of the post and then gets his head looped around the post. It happens every time. So you, the person walking the dog, see that he can't do it, that he can't keep going 
the way that he wants to go if he really wants to move forward. And therefore, you, you pull him back. You pull him back because actually you want to enable him to go forward. The dog walker wants the same thing as the dog, namely forward movement. For that very reason, he resists your pull back. Or, if he is an obedient dog, yields to it reluctantly as a matter of duty, which seems to him to be quite in opposition to his own will. Though in fact, it is only in yielding to you that he will ever succeed in getting where he wants to go. Notice that this, this dog walker is actually leading the dog to freedom. Do you see that he's leading the dog to freedom even though he is restricting the dog's movement? The dog who would have otherwise tangled himself around the pole, ironically in the name of personal freedom. Or as I saw another author put it this week, real freedom is not freedom from all restrictions. It's about finding the right ones. God affirms our desire for true freedom and fulfillment and joy. And that's why he doesn't just stand there when we're on the path to destruction. Do you see this? In fact, the more, this is so important, the more that God shares our desire for happiness and satisfaction, the more zealously he will call out our sin and tell us to purge it. False prophets, false teachers, you name it, care more about their well-being and popularity than our good, so they avoid telling us the hard things that we need to hear to experience true transformation, and then they end up healing our wounds lightly, to quote Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. Jesus the Messiah, on the other hand, tells us hard, even painful things that lead us into transformation in true healing and inner righteousness. Here are two questions for the sake of discerning lustfulness. And I'm convinced that we actually, and unfortunately, tend to be more lustful than we think because we're remarkably skilled at, at coddling and even defending our lust, and, and we always compare ourselves favorably to other people. And again, the focus here is on sexual lust, since that's the focus of this text. Number one, are you objectifying someone you find attractive? Are you objectifying someone you find attractive? In other words, instead of seeing this person as someone to care for and serve, an image bearer of God, your brother or sister in Christ, are you beginning to use this person mentally for personal gratification? It probably goes without saying that this is always happening with pornography, but of course that is far from the only space in which that happens. And keep in mind that even if you're single and you're attracted to someone else who's single, lust is still a possibility if you start to objectify or commodify that person, essentially seeing that person as someone who can satisfy your desires or to make you happy. Attraction can be such a wonderful part of pursuing marriage, but remember that you are pursuing marriage primarily because you are interested in covenantally serving your spouse within a one-flesh union for the rest of your life. Question number two. Has your attraction to someone 
or your affections for someone. By the way, affections, uh, selfishness masquerades as affection in cases of lust. Has your attraction to someone or your affections for someone clearly dampened your affections for Jesus? And keep in mind here that it might be necessary to ask friends to speak honestly into this question lest we deceive ourselves. If you're trying to sort out the difference, this raises all kinds of questions. If you're, deci- if you're trying to sort out the difference between, you know, oh, wow, that person is attractive, which is not morally problematic on its own, and, and full-blown lust, if you're trying to, what, what's the difference between those two things? I would strongly encourage you to pray this prayer from the first volume of the prayer collection called Every Moment Holy. This is intended to be a preventative prayer, but it also works very well as a clarifying and convicting prayer when necessary. Here's a prayer. Lord, I praise you for divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now train my heart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of this world. Pray that kind of prayer. It'll help you see, is this attraction or is this lust? Is it turning downward. Now, what if we're convicted by all of this? What do we do? I mean, do we wallow in grief? Do we wallow in despair, self-pity? What do we do? Or is there another way? And um, even if you're not convicted, listen anyway, because you might be kidding yourself. And that brings us to the exhortation I told you about earlier. So here's, here's what we should do. Tear it out. Lustful intentions, what do we do about them? Verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus' language is simultaneously quite violent and non-literal, a combination that's very challenging for us to grasp and even feels a little bit like a paradox. When Jesus uses the word tear, we're talking about gouging. We're talking about carving out our right eye, our, our dominant eye from its socket. And then when Jesus uses the word cut, we're talking about amputating our right or our, our dominant hand, starting with the flesh than the tendons, than the bone. This is the language that Jesus is using. And yet, as far as we can tell, Jesus' followers continue to follow him with their eyes and limbs fully intact, even though lust was anything but a non-issue. So what do we make of this? The violence that Jesus is exhorting is violence to our sin. The violence that Jesus is exhorting is violence to our sin. He's telling us to put to death what is earthly in us by whatever means that might require, no matter how inconvenient or costly it might be, that we might have life, church, spiritually speaking, and live well in this world. If you need to stop using a smartphone to stamp out the fires of your lustful heart, 
stop using a smartphone. If you need to change the time that you go to the gym or go to a, an entirely different gym, do that. Go to a different gym. If you need to change the dynamics of a particular relationship, even for a season, then do it. Chipper, I don't know. This, this sounds so dramatic. It sounds so dramatic. Maybe. But it sure sounds worth it to me. If, if, second half of verse 30, it means keeping your whole body from going into hell. I thought about cutting this illustration, but I'm not going to, and we're just going to go a couple minutes late. I apologize, but it just preaches, and I feel like the Lord is putting this on my heart, so we're just going to do it, amen, and next week we'll make, we'll make it up to you, I promise. Many of you are probably familiar with the story of Aaron Ralston, the mountaineer, who in 2003 got trapped in the Utah Canyon when an 800-pound boulder dislodged and pinned his right wrist to the canyon wall. And after trying for five days unsuccessfully to extricate his arm and then eventually running out of food and water, he realized that his death was certain unless he could find a way to cut off his own arm. And so he found, I'm going to be kind of PG here, I'm not going to get into the details, he found a way to do just that by, to put it as honestly yet mildly as possible, making strategic use of torque and a blade that was part of, quote, not a leather man, but what you'd get if you bought a $15 flashlight and got a free multi-use tool. Dramatic. Yes. In fact, seven years later, James Franco starred in a full-length film about this story. You cannot get more dramatic than James Franco, right? Painful, inconvenient, Yes, like the definition of it. Worth it? Yes, because in cutting off his arm, he saved his life. But here's the thing. We can't just muster up the energy to put our sin to death, can we? Perhaps, as we said earlier, we can sort of stay married or participate in some kind of external conformity for social or practical reasons. But that doesn't address the hard stuff. Perhaps we can even, maybe we could physically cut off our own arm like, like Aaron Ralston if we got stuck in a canyon. I kind of doubt it, but maybe. But that still wouldn't address the hard stuff. You could walk around with, with, with one arm, literally, and still have a lust problem. In fact, if you check out Ralston's story after all of this, you'll see that his, his post Amputation romantic life has been rather fraught, including a divorce and, and domestic abuse allegations and all sorts of things like that. So then how do we become the kind of people who put our lust to death? That's the question. By repenting of our sin, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew chapter 4. And then by walking with Jesus, the one who brings the kingdom, and giving him our hearts, and abiding in his love. And as we abide in the love of Jesus, Jesus renovates our hearts, and he completely reorders our loves. And in doing so, what happens is we come to really hate our sin, particularly the way in which that sin keeps us from enjoying the Lord and flourishing in this world. And then Jesus empowers us 
presently by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus empowers us to gouge out our eyes and cut off our arms that we might truly live. So the way to turn around here has a lot more to do with Jesus than us. You see this? It has a lot more to do with pressing into him. And do you see that such a grace, do you see that such a grace that God permits us to turn around in the first place? That God, far from being some kind of killjoy when it comes to our sexuality, is overwhelmingly for us and for our good, so much so that he gave up his own life on the cross to pay the penalty our lust deserves, though he never lusted, that we might have life. Do you see his grace here? And do you see that this means regardless of how sin-stained your past and present might be, do you see that you, you still have hope? That all is not lost. That you can run to Jesus. And notice too, especially in the context. This is so important. Especially in the context of sexuality. That being fully satisfied in Jesus and abiding in his love. It gives us the resources that we need to see people like our spouse or someone else's spouse. Or whomever. As people to serve instead of take from. Which helps diminish the allure of lust when we know that one day we're going to be married to the Lamb of God. Isn't it something that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage? When we know that one day we're going to be married to the Lamb of God, then you can invest sacrificially in your earthly marriage, even when things are really, really difficult. Because you know where the story is going. When you know that one day you're going to be married to the Lamb of God, then you can still experience genuine satisfaction, even in the midst of the very real pain that many single people experience when they don't have the earthly marriage they're longing for. It doesn't mean the pain's going to go away, but it does mean you know where the story is going, and so you can be content. If you're not familiar, and we're going to end here, if you're not familiar with this concept of abiding in the love of Jesus, it mainly has to do with posturing ourselves in such a way that we can receive and experience His transformational love. And this is going to mean scripture meditation, prayer, Silence and solitude, fasting, fellowship with other Christians, Sabbath rest, all of it. And for those of us who maybe who have developed sexual addictions or perhaps discovered that some of our behaviors are related to trauma or whatever the case might be, counseling, dedicated recovery groups, medical care, etc. might be part of the equation too. I think it's a mistake to pit these kinds of things against one another. Very often they're necessary parts of the same team. But in cases of lust, there are always heart issues somewhere, even when other issues are at play. Church, what will it look like this week for Jesus to reorder our hearts and redirect our desires? What will that look like for you? And to re-ask the question from the beginning of our time this morning, are you willing to trust Jesus with this work, no matter how costly it might be, regardless of how upside down it might feel culturally? Do you really believe that this is the way to live well in the world? I pray that you will believe exactly this. And I pray that you will meet with Jesus day after day after day, that you might freshly experience his grace and keep trusting him. And listen, if you, if you feel trapped, if you, are, if you are struggling with lust, 
and you just feel stuck. You, you've tried all sorts. You don't know where to go. Please, I hope that you feel the freedom to reach out to us, to put something on your connection card. Email me. Talk to me. We want to be part of the community of people that helps you heal and abide in the love of Jesus. So I would encourage you not to wrestle alone. Amen.